Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shining your light into a very dark world and enabling us to have the light of life living inside of us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gift of music. We thank you for how the gospel infuses music and how it's foretold and proclaimed from the oldest of adults even to the youngest of children. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Most, if not all of us, have given gifts and received gifts at Christmas. Sometimes we receive gifts and it's exactly what we ask for. Sometimes the gift even exceeds the expectation. And then there are other gifts. Every family has a clueless cousin, a cheapskate uncle. You open the gifts from them and immediately you think to yourself, well, that's going back to the department store. Or you think to yourself, I'm going to put that in my basement in the box that's labeled Future Dirty Santa Gifts. Or I'll shove it in the back of my closet in the hopes that I can re-gift it next year. Not many of us are very good poker players. When a gift is open, when you open a gift, your excitement or lack thereof is written all over your face. If it's exactly what you wanted, it is portrayed on your face. If it's not exactly what you wanted, that too is also portrayed on your face. This has caused me to conclude that how we respond to the gift reveals our level of appreciation for the gift. This morning, I want to remind you of God's greatest Christmas gift. And how do you respond to that gift? The answer is found in Matthew chapter 2. I invite you to take your Bible and turn there. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1, read through verse 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. After the birth of Jesus, it is Matthew who tells us that wise men from the east came to find Jesus. This is the only place in all of Scripture where the Magi are mentioned. We don't know a whole lot about them. Most scholars believe that these Magi were probably from Persia. In all likelihood, they were political rulers or religious leaders who dabbled in astronomy. We don't know the number of Magi. We assume there were three The reason we do that is because they had three gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh. And also there's that little Christmas song, We Three Kings, so I guess there has to be three of them. We don't know much about the Magi. We call them wise men, but if you ask me, what they did sounded pretty foolish. They went to another country, gained an audience with the existing king, And they ask him the whereabouts of his replacement. Normally, in that day and time, there was a surefire way of execution. Yet that's exactly what these magi did. They went to a foreign country, went to the capital city of Jerusalem, gained an audience with King Herod, and asked the question, where is he born king of the Jews? In other words, where is your replacement? King Herod must have thought, now wait a minute, I am the king of the Jews. I have not had a son. Why are you here? Of all the potential things that they could have gotten wrong, there's one thing that they got right. These magi proclaimed that this one was born king. And they're exactly right. Jesus did not become king. He was not elected king. He was not appointed king. He is born king. He's as much king as if he was seated on his throne in heaven or lying in a manger in a Bethlehem barn. He is king. He was born king. He is king whether he is working in his father's carpentry shop whether he's teaching in the temple at the age of 12, whether he's preaching along a Galilean seashore, regardless of whether he's healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead back to life, dying on a cross for your sins and mine, being placed into a borrowed tomb, on the third day being raised from the dead, ascending into the heavens, the Magi got it right. This one is born king. This one who is born king is as much king whether he is in heaven or on earth. He's as much king whether he's in a cradle or on a cross. He's as much king whether he is in his infancy or in his eternity. The Bible says he is king of all kings. And since that is true, this one who is born king, he is king over your problems. 
He is king over your diseases. He is king over your cancer. He is king over your marriage. He is king over your husband. He is king over your wife. He is king over your children. He is king over your grandchildren. He is king over your employment. He is king over your fears. He is king over your failures. He is king over this church. He is king over this community. He is king over this country. He is king over the nations. He is king over the world. He is king then and there. He is king in the future. He is king of all kings. And the Magi got it right. He is born king. Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? The fact that these Magi made this journey from Persia is rather interesting and astounding. After all, they're not Jewish. What do they care if the one born king of the Jews had arrived? It's not like that Israel was any political or military threat to Persia. So once again, why would they make the long journey? They said, we've seen his star in the east. Certainly they believe that whenever a new star appeared, that signified the arrival, the birth of someone significant. But nowhere in the text are we given the implication that somehow these guys were globetrotters who just went all over the world whenever a new king was born. So why did they come? Why did they make this journey? The answer is found on their lips. We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Somehow, they understood that this one born was born king. That this one born king is worthy of worship. He is worth the sacrifice. He is worth the struggle. He is worth the stress. He is worth it, for he is born king. I don't know how long it took you to get to the worship service today. But I promise you, the distance you traveled is nothing compared to the distance traveled by the, by the Magi. And regardless of whatever you had to sacrifice in order to be here today, these wise men would tell you, he is worth it. Regardless of what you had to say no to in order to say yes to being here today, these wise men would say, he is worth it. Whatever stress you had to endure in order to get all the family in the car at the same time in the hopes of getting to church on time, whatever stress you had to go through, the Magi would tell you he is worth it. Because this one born king is worth our worship. We have come and traveled from the east. We followed his star and we have come to worship him. He is worth the sacrifice. He is worth whatever you have to say no to. He is worth whatever stress you have to endure because he is worth it. Somehow I think this has lapsed in our mentality. Just the other day I was talking to a woman who does not go to this church but she knows I'm a pastor and she asked me are you guys having church on Christmas day? You know it's that rare event where Christmas Day actually falls on a Sunday. 
So she asked me, are you guys having church? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, yeah, we're, we're going to have church. What about you at, at your place of worship? Are you guys going to have church? And she said, you know, I don't really know. I guess I should know. They probably announced it, but you know nobody pays attention to those announcements. And um, I, I don't know if we're actually having church or not. But you know, when it falls on Sunday, when Christmas Day falls on Sunday, it kind of is inconvenient. And I looked at her and I said, come again? And she said, well, we've got all the, the presents for the children that we're going to have to open that Christmas morning. And all my family comes to my house and I've got all the food to prepare. So to be honest, it, it's really, it, it's, it's not very convenient. But you know what, friends? He's worth it. You know, even some of my own staff members here at this faith family, here at this church, they've told me on more than one occasion, pastor, be ready, because next Sunday morning, the church attendance will be low. I said, are you kidding me? They said, no, 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 we, we think that a worship attendance next Sunday, it'll be pretty poor. And I said, but we're going from three services to one service. You mean, you don't think we can pack the house once on Christmas Day? And some of the church staff have said to me, well, other people have come up to us and, and they said, well, you know, we're probably going to choose either to come Christmas Eve on Saturday night or Christmas Day on Sunday morning, but we're not going to come to both. My friends, we tell our children all the time that Jesus is the reason for the season. And we tell our culture that all this Christmas thing is about Jesus Christ. And when Christmas Day happens to fall on a Sunday, and we as God's people don't show up for church, what does that communicate to our children and what does it say to our culture? Oh, my friend, can I just tell you this morning, he is worth it. He's worth whatever sacrifice. He's worth whatever you have to say no to. He's worth whatever stress you have to endure. The Magi, if they get some things wrong, they get a few things right. They declare he is born king and he's worth the sacrifice. He's worth the uh, effort. Why? Because he's worthy of my worship and my praise. We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Now, this really disturbs King Herod. He is confused. That's what the word literally means. He, along with all of Jerusalem, confused about this announcement. So Herod does what Herod is supposed to do. He gets the experts involved. He calls for the scholars, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He asks them the question, where is this Christ child to be born? They quickly conclude Bethlehem. They quote from the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, are by no means least in the land of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, a shepherd of my people. They quickly conclude that the Messiah, the Christ child, is to be born only five miles away from the capital city of Jerusalem in that little town called Bethlehem. It's important to note that King Herod 
was a paranoid schizophrenic. He ruled for about 30 years. Initially, his rule was uh, very strong. Uh, He was a great diplomat. He tremendously built up the nation. But all the while, he was paranoid. You see, Herod was not a full Jew. He was an Idumean, which means he was an Edomite, which means he is a descendant of Esau. So he comes not from the line and lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Relatives to the nation of Israel, but all of us have those quirky family members, don't we? That's who the Edomites were. They were those quirky kind of enemies in the family. So King Herod was there. He was ruling But he always knew that he did not have the respect of everyone else because there were some people that criticized him and looked at him as not one who was fully Jewish. All the while, he was paranoid. By the time we get to our story of Matthew chapter 2, he's a little bit older. He is a paranoid schizophrenic. In our day, we would either institutionalize him or he would be a Washington politician, one of the two. Paranoid schizophrenic. In fact, uh, historians tell us that King Herod put to death several of his closest friends and family members because he thought that they were trying to take away his throne. So out of fear, he would execute them. Can you imagine what a persona like that would do when they hear the news from strangers from another country? Hey, where is the one born king of the Jews? This man is thrown into a tailspin of paranoia. He doesn't know exactly what to do next. When he hears that Jesus, the Christ, is to be born in Bethlehem, only five miles from Jerusalem, he calls the Magi together secretly. And he says to them, go, make careful search for that child. And when you find him, get word back to me, for I too want to go and worship him. King Herod no more wanted to worship Jesus than a devout Auburn fan is pulling for Alabama in the college playoffs. (laughs) There's no way that was going to happen. So he says, you go and find the child and get word back to me and I will go and worship him. This passage must have something to do with worship. The word is mentioned three times in 12 verses. We find it in verse 2, in verse 8, and in verse 11. I think what Matthew is telling us is that how we respond to the gift of Christmas, you and I call worship. So how we respond to Christ is seen and portrayed in our worship. If we truly acknowledge he is born king and he is worth it, it will be revealed in our worship. Every culture has had worship wars. In our day, worship wars are waged over really uh, trivial matters. What songs do we sing? What instruments do we play? What clothes do we dress? How long is the service? All those things in the big scheme of things are really quite trivial. Yet every culture has worship wars. Different people worshiping in different ways. Think for me just for a moment the ways the main characters of this story worship Christ. 
I'll go ahead and tell you, there had nothing to do with music. There's nothing to do with instruments. It's just different people as they respond to the gift of Jesus. Look at the three main groups or three main characters. You have the scholars. There's some people who are quite scholastic in their worship of Christ. These scholars, they said that they loved God and they said that they loved the word of God. And when asked the question, uh, where in the word of God does it tell us where the Messiah is going to be born? They quickly conclude accurately that it must be Bethlehem. And even though they have knowledge of God's word, that knowledge does not impact anything that they do. There's no indication in this story that any of those scholars, chief priests, experts in the law, there's no reference that any of them made the five-mile journey to Bethlehem. There's no reference at all. Yet these are people who say they love God, they love his word, they're looking for the Messiah, and yet when they're told the answer that the Messiah has come, and where does he appear but Bethlehem, and it's not a long journey, it's only about five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, not one of the scholars we are told ever make the trip to Bethlehem. Do you think there are still people like that today? They have knowledge. They can even quote some scripture verses. But it doesn't impact the decisions they make on a daily basis. They're not going to change anything that they normally do because of the knowledge that they have. Yet all the while, they're going to claim to love God and love his word. I wonder, are there still scholastic worshipers in the 21st century? Also look at King Herod. King Herod was a worshiper of sorts. He gave lip service, but his heart was calloused. He had the right words. He said, I too want to go and worship that Christ child. And I think that he just wanted to determine whether this one born truly is king who needed to be dealt with or if he was someone who could advance the cause of Herod. If this one born truly was born king of the Jews, then Herod would have to dispose of him, get rid of him, because he would be a threat to Herod's agenda. And certainly, I think that's what Herod believed. For later, we'll be told that Herod gave the edict to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, two years of age and younger, in accordance with what he learned from the Magi. So Herod determined that this one born king of the Jews had to be taken out. Aren't there people like that today? That if Jesus can advance their cause, they're all in. If Jesus can make their life comfortable, if Jesus can help them get a promotion, if Jesus can land them a great job, if Jesus can help them have a happy marriage, if Jesus can help them raise healthy children, if Jesus can help them advance their cause, they are all in. Yes, we want to worship Jesus. But the moment Jesus poses a threat to their own agenda, they say, we got to get rid of him. we got to ignore him. We've got to dispose of him. I wonder if still today there are people who worship like Herod. They're with Jesus so long as he can advance their cause, but the moment he becomes a threat to their own selfish supremacy, they walk away. They've got to deal with him. They've got to execute him. 
I also want you to note uh, the way in which the Magi worshipped. It wasn't enough for them to be in the vicinity of Jesus. They wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. They could have come to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. They could have learned that the Christ child was not there. They could have returned back to Persia and said, well, we gave it our best shot. We gave it the old college try. We did our best, but he wasn't there. Oh, well. It wasn't enough for them to be in the vicinity of Jesus. They had to be at the feet of Jesus. It wasn't enough for them to be in the right zip code. They had to be at the accurate address. Where is this one born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east. We've come to worship him. They learn he is to be born in Bethlehem. They follow the star. The star which they first saw in their foreign hometown, their, their own country, and then they followed it to a foreign land of Israel, and it, and it continued to lead them, and it rested over the house where Jesus was staying. I don't mean to mess up your nativity scene, but you do realize that the wise men did not go to the stable. Scripture clearly says that they went to the house where Jesus was staying. Now, I don't think you need to go home and burn the wise men from your nativity scenes. I think your nativity is like my nativity. It tells redemptive history that all people come and see who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ child of both rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, men and women. It's a great picture of redemptive cosmic history, but let's just be biblical about it. The wise men, the magi, they did not go to the stable. They went to the house. It wasn't enough for them to be in the vicinity of Jesus. They had to be at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because they knew somehow, some way, he was born king and he is worth it. So these wealthy, well-dressed men walked into a home unannounced, never uh, to introduce themselves. They just simply go in and they bow down at the feet of this kingly kid. Jesus by this time is a toddler. Maybe he's moving around just a bit and they come and they bow down in front of him. It's not enough to be in the vicinity of Jesus. Had to be at the feet of Jesus. Martha was at the vicinity of Jesus. But Mary was seated at his feet listening to his teaching. Simon the Pharisee was in the vicinity of Jesus But the woman of ill repute who crashed the party of Luke chapter 7, she comes and kneels at the feet of Jesus. She breaks that expensive alabaster jar of perfume, pours all of its contents on him, and with her tears, she wets his feet and dries them with her hair. Judas was in the vicinity of Jesus for three years. Peter, James, and John at the feet of Jesus. It makes all the difference in the world, this one and the one to come. Whether we worship Jesus in his proper vicinity or we worship him in his proper place and posture at his feet. These guys came and they didn't just say they wanted to worship Jesus, but they showed it. They worshiped with their wealth. You know, you can do one of two things with your wealth. Either you will worship your wealth or you'll worship through your wealth. Those are the only two options you got. Either you're going to worship your wealth or you're going to worship through your wealth. These magi worship through their money. 
They brought gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Gold, the most precious commodity on the planet, fit for any king. Frankincense. Incense used in worship. They're declaring that this one is worth it. He's worthy of worship. And they brought a baby, myrrh. Myrrh was used in the death process. Somehow they knew this king would be great in his living and in his dying. So they brought him myrrh. In John chapter 19, it is the author who tells us that Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, came and took down the dead body of Christ. And Nicodemus brought with him 75 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and alloys to anoint the body of Jesus for proper burial. Somehow these magi got it. Somehow they understood this one born is born king. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the world and he is worth it. And so we give him all that we are, our gold, our incense, and our myrrh, all of our money, all of our worship, all of our living, all of our dying. We lay it all at his feet. This imagery is important to Matthew. You could say it's important to all the gospels, but specifically it is overly important, enormously important to Matthew. Matthew forms this image of worship as bookends around his gospel. It's here in Matthew chapter 2. It'll also be found in Matthew chapter 28. Both of these bookends serve as the meaning of the whole middle, that everything in its gospel is all about worship. Here in Matthew chapter 2, it's wise men who travel from the east. They bow down and they worship the Christ child. And this Christ child is the God-man. And he dies on a cross For your sins and mine, he's placed in a borrowed tomb. He's raised on the third day. And in Matthew 28, he stands on top of a mountain. And his disciples come. And when they behold the resurrected Christ, what do they do? They bow down and they worship him. Grown men, once again, falling face down on the ground. And what are they declaring? You are born king you are worth it you are christ for not even death could hold you for the name of jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father Every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Either that knee will bow out of commitment or compulsion, but every knee will bow. For those of us who are in Christ, we will bow out of commitment unto the Lord. And we will declare by our living and by our dying, by our action, by our monetary gain, we'll declare by everything at our disposal, you are Christ and you're worth it. We will bow out of commitment. But even the people who live and die in rebellion to the word of God, even people who declare Jesus is a phony and a hoax. Scripture says that one day, albeit too late, one day even their knees will bow. 
bowing not out of commitment, but out of compulsion, out of the overwhelming reality that this one is born king, and he was worth it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, God, you're right. Jesus is Lord. Friends, I want you to bow now out of commitment and not then out of compulsion. I want you to bow now where it makes all the difference in your living and your dying, it makes all the difference in the here and now and the there and then. I want you to bow now and declare he is Christ. Don't come to him like an expert in the law. Don't come to him like a scholastic uh, chief priest. Don't, don't come to him just with knowledge of a few verses and it never transforms how you actually make decisions and live. Oh, don't, don't come to him just like King Herod who just wanted to see if this one could advance his own selfish cause. No, you and I need to come like magi to declare this one is born king so he can take care of all my problems. He is ruler over everything in the here and now and the there and then. This one is born king and he's worth it. I don't know what you have to sacrifice in order to be a faith follower of the Lord. I don't know what you have to say no to in order to follow hard after God. I don't know what stress you have to endure in order to live right before the Lord. But regardless of what it is, I came this morning just to tell you, he is worth it. Because how you respond to a gift reveals the level of appreciation that you have for the gift. So how do you respond to God's Christmas gift? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Literally, symbolically, metaphorically, we bow before you because you are king and you're worth it. Lord, if there's one here listening to my voice who has never accepted you as personal Savior and Lord, I pray that today in this very moment when we sing a song and the first note is struck, that person will come forward and declare Jesus is Christ. I need this Jesus in my life. Lord, for those of us who are here who are believers in Jesus, help us to respond to you in the right way. Help us to worship you in a way that is that is worthy and honorable. Help us to worship sim uh, similarly to the Magi. Oh, Father, we declare that your gift at Christmas is enormous and great and majestic. It's worth all that we can give. So help us to give it to you freely. If there's one here and they need a faith family, they need a home, Lord, help them to land in this church. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.